Hey there, and thanks for joining Chicago Tonight Black Voices. I'm Brandis Friedman. Here's what we're looking at. Childbirth is deadly for black families no matter their income, according to new research. A podcast takes a deep dive into a 1997 hate crime at sea. See what I told you? They were just kidding. Hey there, and thanks for joining Chicago Tonight Black Voices. I'm Brandis Friedman, and here's what we're looking at. Childbirth is deadly for black families no matter their income, according to new research. A podcast takes a deep dive into a 1997 hate crime in Southside Bridgeport. How to enter a CIA-sponsored contest to win a makerspace for your school. A new scholarship and fellowship with the goal of supporting City College's students on their way to becoming community leaders. I'm Angelito, and coming up tonight, we're taking a trip back in time with help from the Green Book. All that coming up, but our first story tonight, why childbirth is much deadlier for black women. New research right after this. Chicago Tonight, Black Voices is made possible in part by Fifth Third Bank and by the support of these donors. We believe when diverse voices are heard and empowered, communities are made stronger, lives are made better, and the future holds greater promise for all. That's why we're proud to support Chicago Tonight Black Voices. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can drive change. Childbirth is deadlier for black families than it is for white families, even for black families with high incomes. This nearly decade-long study from the National Bureau of Economic Research looked at births in California, finding that babies born to the richest black women were still more likely to die than babies born to the poorest white women. Here to talk about this research and why the difference is so stark are Dr. Dawn Collier, an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at University of Illinois, Chicago, and Janine Valerie Logan, founder and lead steward at the Chicago Southside Birth Center and the leader in residence at Chicago Beyond. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Dr. Thank Collier, you. let's start with you, please. What does this report tell you? It tells us more of what we already knew, that black women are doing worse when it comes to the morbidity and mortality when they are in the hospitals. Um, what this tells us also is that you can't assume that it's just because of social economics. So this is something that's kind of baked in the cake 
and that means it has long-term implications and why these things are happening. Because you would think that with higher income, you would have better access to exactly. health care and uh, the vitamins, everything, exactly. right, that would lead to a better health outcome, yep. but it doesn't. Nope. Why not? Well, I think the obvious thing is racism. You know, I think that black women, black people are undergoing racism in all shades and all types of places where they live, where they work, access to good food, grocery stores. Um, and that is something that's centuries old, decades old, and it's not going to change just in this last century or this last period of time where people are getting to be a little more successful. Researchers are concerned that this study could be an understatement because California's maternal mortality rate has been declining over the last decades while deaths uh, have gone up in the rest of the country. Uh, Janine, how would you describe this disparity in Chicago? Uh, I, exactly what Dr. Kaya said. It, looking at the um, segregation in Chicago and the lack of access, the food deserts, the toxic stress in communities, um, some which are you know intentional with redlining and racism and lack of access to transportation to even get to healthcare um, facilities. And the, since 2019, five hospitals have closed on the south side of Chicago. And so we're seeing these same numbers that are happening in California worse in some of our communities in, in the city. And you're saying five hospitals have closed on the south side since 2019. And yes. of course, that includes the, the three years of the pandemic. Yes. Uh, Dr. Collier, what are some of the health risks uh, that mothers and babies are in danger of uh, that lead to mortality? Well, one of the main things we see is that they have a higher risk of, th of uh, complications from high blood pressure and hypertension. So they have higher risks of preeclampsia. That leads to higher risk for C-sections. Alongside with that, they have higher risk for things like diabetes, and those two things give us the decreased morbidity and mortality for both the children that are preterm, prematurity, and the morbidity with that, and also the morbidity that goes with the mom who's having the complications from those things. Uh, Janine, you're a midwife. Explain the importance of your services, uh, especially because you are a black professional and what that means to the families you serve. Yes, um, I am a midwife, and so for those who don't know, I see folks during their pregnancy, during their birth, and postpartum. I also provide some primary care as well as like family planning and wellness care, like pap smears and things. Um, it's really important. Like I cannot tell you how many times I walk in the room and someone's like, number one, I've never seen a black provider before. And I've traveled very far just to see you because I know that if I have my baby with you, we're less likely to die. Yeah. And talk a little bit about that because uh, the South Side, you mentioned, you know, deserts. Mm -hmm. There can be birthing deserts as mm -hmm. well. Tell me a little bit about the impact that that has uh, on someone who is uh, pregnant. Right. So when you don't have a facility in your community or even a facility that you trust, there's many times where I'm seeing people and like, oh, no, I can't go to that hospital. That's where my grandmother died. That's where my uncle died. I don't trust the providers there. You're having people piecemealing their care together so they'll go to the ER here or go to a clinic here. There's no continuity of care, so things can be missed. Appointments can be missed for lack of transportation. And so when people don't feel safe and comfortable and trust their providers, they're not going to be willing to talk about things that are really happening to them, like they're not eating or the pain that they're having or the stress that they're feeling. I imagine there's also a cultural component there Absolutely. as well as being comfortable with someone who looks like you. Absolutely. I've seen people now like, 
I wouldn't tell another midwife this, or I wouldn't tell, you know, the doctor this, but um, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's just us girls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dr. Collier, uh, what are the factors that can contribute to, to birthing complications outside of a hospital interaction? Well, I think what we were talking about earlier is just access. So making sure you have regular care, make sure, making sure that you're able to get to the hospital in time, making sure that you have a pharmacy that you can regularly go to and get the medication you need, making sure that you can get into an appointment that you need right away. Maybe your appointment was four weeks away, but you need to see the doc in a week. Um, and that's where we're talking about these deserts where we don't have access and the patients are not driving. They're taking a bus or they have to, you know, rely on a ride. So that impacts how often they can get in to see us and all of that impacts them having the regular care that they need because they need to understand the importance of it, but if they're not showing up, they don't realize how important it is to have the access there. And we often reference, you know, of course, Serena Williams and how, mm -hmm. you know, she had her own complications and had to really speak up um, to, to get the professionals around her when she was delivering her baby to, to listen. Um, Janine, you're working to open the Southside Birthing Center. How do you hope this center changes the landscape of maternal care in Chicago? Well, one thing I'm really excited about is that the birth center will be community focused, right? And so I live on the south side, clients will be from the south side, so they un we, I understand what would be happening in communities, so what's important to community is important to me. I'll use um, the west side, for example. I remember in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, when the, um, the grocery stores were closed, and I knew people were having issues transportation, getting to the clinic to be seen. So we would be aware of that and, you know, meet people where they're at, do home visits and things like that. But it's really an exciting opportunity to provide that um, care to folks that look like me and vice versa. I think that's going to be really exciting. Just a few seconds left, Dr. Collier. What needs to change to provide better care to families? We need to increase access in the neighborhoods of the people that need the best care. Um, we need to make sure that we're provi getting providers that reflect the neighborhoods that they're in. So we need to go into high schools and colleges and really help get our African-American students back into medicine and into nursing and become midwives because we know that patients do better when they look like the physicians that are taking care of them. So black babies do better with black physicians and vice versa. A lot of work. Uh, my thanks to Dr. Dawn Collier and Janine Valerie Logan for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Up next, a resource for black drivers during the Jim Crow era. It was a critical resource for black drivers during the traveling the country during the Jim Crow era. Now the Green Book is the subject of a traveling exhibit of the Smithsonian Institute on display at the Illinois Holocaust Museum in Skokie. It illustrates what it was like driving while black all those years ago. Here's Angel Edo. But you need to be careful on the road. Old Jim Crow won't let people like us stop just anywhere. Driving while black, especially during the Jim Crow era, was not safe for black Americans. 
You may have had a map, but the map isn't going to detail for you if the town you're coming into is a sundown town, if you are going to be served at the restaurant, if you're going to have to enter through the back door. So by creating the Green Book, he was making black lives better and more enjoyable and safer. Now, in 1936, the Negro Motorist Green Book was created by Harlem Postman Victor Hugo Green, and it was actually modeled after another book that had been created for Jewish travelers during that time. For us, we are a Holocaust museum, but because of the Holocaust, it's also part of our mission that we look at other social justice issues, human rights violations, human rights atrocities, and certainly the Jim Crow era and segregation in the United States. And then this amazingly creative, entrepreneurial, um, and almost simple response to it is something we wanted to highlight. We educate people through the exhibitions that we have on the Holocaust and on other issues so that we can create a more active and engaged citizenry that will actually take action in their community and fight for a better society. For nearly 30 years, the Green Book led black drivers down roads by outlining restaurants, hotels, safe houses, and other safe spaces they could frequent without fearing for their lives. Chicago and Marlene Flagg came to visit the exhibit to better understand the experiences of her Southern family, like her aunt. When she was driving through a certain town of Mississippi, her children were in the back seat. She was able to go through the town without anyone stopping her because she looked like she was white. But her children looked, were black and looked black. So what she did, she put them in the back seat of the car and told them to lay down and she took a blanket, covered them with a blanket and told them not to move and not to talk while she drove, drove through the town. The Great Migration and Route 66 both play a part in the Green Book, marking Chicago's presence. Bronzeville specifically made up 80% of the city's listings. The amount of black Americans that came up to Chicago and then would uh, you know, need to travel back south to visit family. Um, Chicago is also the starting point of Route 66, which is the way in which you would really get west. So we have not only this incredible neon sign from the Sutherland, which was a hotel and club, but today is an apartment, apartment building. We also have a projection that includes some of the businesses that were listed in the Green Book. There were about 200 businesses that were listed over the years in the Green Book that were in Chicago. About 30 of the buildings still exist, and about um, two of the businesses still exist. But the need for the Green Book changed when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. Expanding accessibility meant Black-owned businesses had to compete with bigger franchises, which had more resources and fewer obstacles. At least half of the featured businesses in the Green Book were closed less than a decade later as a result. We can't forget our history. So it's important, not just for this month, but for every day. Share your experiences with your children. Ask your grandparents, let the grandparents, the great-grandparents while they're alive, share their experiences and also record it, oral history too, so it won't be forgotten. For Chicago Tonight Black Voices, I'm Angel Ito. And you can see the Green Book exhibit at the Illinois Holocaust Museum in Skokie through April 23rd. In 1997, 13-year-old Leonard Clark and a friend rode their bikes into deeply white Bridgeport. There, a group of young white men beat Leonard into a coma 
simply for being black in a white neighborhood. News of the attack spread across the country, but even as Leonard was still comatose in the hospital, city leaders began calling for racial reconciliation. That rapid turn stuck with Johannes LaCour, who at the time was a college student, fledgling journalist, and weed dealer. As host of the podcast, You Didn't See Nothing, LaCour revisits the twists and turns of the Leonard Clark story, as well as those in his own life. And Johannes LaCour joins us now to talk about it. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the podcast's name, You Didn't See Nothing, where does that name come from? It actually comes from a, a guy who saw something, well, who was there, right? So there was a guy from Bridgeport who witnessed this beating, called the police. Uh, the police came and was trying to figure out what was going on. As the witness begins to tell him, well, first of all, you had other residents out there claiming that it was a Mexican person who had beaten Leonard and his friend. And when the guy who actually called the police stopped, like, no, nah, hold on, that's not how it went. Somebody, a Bridgeport resident from the crowd, yelled out, you didn't see nothing. Mm -hmm. Basically, in order, basically threatening in a threatening kind of manner, like, you know, you didn't see nothing. And so uh, that stuck out, and it made a lot of sense. So we kind of, we took a, we took a quote straight from the, uh, the, so the incident. You say in the podcast that black kids getting attacked in white neighborhoods in Chicago was not unusual even in 1997. What was it about Lenar Clark's story that stuck with you? He was so young. He was beaten so viciously in Bridgeport by young men much older, much bigger, and it was close enough to my own home and where I came up in Hyde Park that uh, I felt like I just had to do something about it. It felt like it was happening on my watch, for real. What made you want to weave your own story into this podcast as well? My producers and I felt like um, I had an interesting perspective on race relations in America and Chicago, having been uh, out, of, out, out of the system, out of the the real world for so long. I was in prison for 10 years. And so that kind of ability to look back uh, just offered me a kind of unique perspective. And um, we felt like just the story of me being a 23-year-old uh, untrained journalist diving into a case that big was also a story in itself. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, the twists and turns of my own life kind of mirrored his, and it, it kind of becomes the tale of, a tale of young black men, Leonard and myself, in Chicago during that time. You, uh, you used some archive footage, including from Chicago Tonight's coverage of the story in the podcast. Uh, here is a clip of the late, great Elizabeth Brackett interviewing a Bridgeport man about the arrest of the three young men from the neighborhood. Three white teenagers have been charged with the attack, though some in Bridgeport say the neighborhood boys have been unfairly accused. I'm sure if they would have done this, they would have said something to an older guy because they would have been proud of it. Not proud of it, but they would have said something to someone older because it makes them look good. Would you say Bridgeport has changed since 1997? Yeah. yeah I mean, a little bit, right? It's changed enough so that I think Bridgeport residents, even the most racist of them, are savvy enough to not do that, right? And just say something so stupid on air like that. At the same time, there's a young lady who owns a, a young sister, a black woman who owns a restaurant in Bridgeport that was just vandalized 
and spray painted with all kind of racial epithets. So it, it's changed, but it's changed in the way racism in America has changed on its face. Um, it's just, you know, it's taking a new form, but it's, it's still at its core. I think it's still Bridgeport, but there are some black residents and there are uh, some white residents with Black Lives Matter signs on their front yard. So that's a change. At the same time, it's, you know, we're still in Chicago and we're still in America. Um, you talk about uh, some of the investigation that you did into the story at the time, uh, particularly how the local media covered it at the time. How would you say they did that? Poorly. Not everybody. There was, um, there were a couple of reporters here and there who I think were really still trying to uh, do quality jobs. I think that, um, I think that without social media, I think that at a time when you had um, so few major outlets to do it, um, the people who really wanted to put their best foot forward kind of weren't allowed to uh, or just face some different challenges. But all in all, I think that, you know, the way reporting was done back then, I can remember going into police headquarters for different stories, not just that one, and being real shocked to see that, you know, journalists weren't even asking many questions of police commanders and officers who were relaying details of, of different crimes. Uh, so we were basically, a lot of journalists were just acting as middlemen between the police and the community when it came to information. And, and you write that journalists, the story, you know, quickly became, you know, went from being, you know, a, a potential hate crime in the beating of this young man to a story of racial healing and, and reconciliation almost overnight. Well, I attribute that to outside efforts. Uh, the lead attacker of the, of the the, the gang that beat up Lennar and left him like that uh, came from a powerful family uh, with mob ties and uh, a Bridgeport family, which also had political ties. Our mayor at the time, then Mayor Richard Daly, was from Bridgeport. A lot of the police um, were from Bridgeport. And so between those ties and, that, uh, and, and, and those connections, they pushed a, a, a big movement to kind of flip the narrative um, and, and shift the talk towards forgiveness. Okay. A lot, a lot of questions, a lot we could talk about for this podcast. Johannes LaCour, thanks for joining us. We'll have to leave it there. Appreciate again, you. Of course. Again, the podcast is You Didn't See Nothing. All seven episodes are now available. We're back with more right after this. What could your school do with a $30,000 makerspace? With a goal of promoting science, technology, engineering, arts, and math education, the CIA, you heard that right, and Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education in Tennessee are partnering to host Mission Possible. It's a competition for STEAM educators in Chicago to win their own makerspace full of equipment that encourages problem-solving thinking. Mission Possible Makerspace Nation is a competition hosted by the Central Intelligence Agency for third through 12th grade educators. Uh, educators create a short video for a chance to win $30,000 worth of makerspace equipment and supplies for their school. Materials in a makerspace can include everything from 3D printers to electrical circuits and robotics components to cardboard, paper, and glue. Of course, some schools don't have the financial resources to implement something like a makerspace. 
So winning $30,000 to buy makerspace technology would make a huge difference for STEAM education at any school. Anyone who educates STEAM subjects for third through 12th grade in any public or private school in the city of Chicago is eligible to enter this competition. The important thing to remember is that participation is not limited only to classroom teachers. If you are a media specialist, a STEM coordinator, a technology coordinator, a principal who is interested in bringing a makerspace to your students, then this is a competition that you should enter. And to enter, educators must submit a short video illustrating the need for a makerspace in their school. The deadline to apply is March 10th, and you can find more information on Mission Possible on our website. The City Colleges of Chicago announces the Timuel Black Scholarship and Fellowship Program, honoring the life and work of the late City College's professor, activist, and historian. The program's goal is to help 20 current City College's students selected as fellows to develop as community leaders in the mold of Timuel Black. We want them to um, explore and examine themselves within the context of being a student at City Colleges, within the context of being a fellow. In addition to be getting some really great content from uh, grassroots leaders that the chancellor has especially uh, identified um, that align with Timuel Black's methodology, his theology, and the way in which he managed his work in the community, they're going to have an opportunity to take a bus trip down south to Selma, Alabama, where Dr. Black hails from. He was born in that area. And so having that experience, leaving Chicago, following the trail from Chicago down south, participating in conversations around grassroots activism and engaging community and institutions in creating transformation and change is what the students should get from this experience. Mrs. Zenobia Black has been instrumental in working with us to make sure that her beloved husband's legacy is really ingrained in this work. And so um, we are working with her to develop a small committee of folks that will, after the first review of scholarships, have an opportunity to learn about the students and help us to determine who will actually be the, the final recipients of the scholarship. The deadline to apply is April 15th and the applicants must be currently enrolled in the City Colleges of Chicago with plans to remain enrolled through spring 2024. A, a fellowship luncheon will be held on June 15th and you can find more information on the scholarship on our website. That's it for tonight. If you're watching us on Saturday night, know you can also catch Black Voices and Latino Voices on Sundays beginning at 10 p.m. And join me and Parish Shuts next week at 10 on Chicago Tonight. We leave you tonight with more from the Green Book exhibit at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. Now for all of us here at Chicago Tonight, Black Voices, I'm Brandis Friedman. Thanks for sharing part of your weekend with us. Stay healthy and safe and have a good night.
Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a personal injury law firm dedicated to preserving the dignity and rights of all individuals.